You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this episode of the Root Simple Podcast, I speak with Will of the Weekend Homestead about fire prevention and homesteading. Before we get to that, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., David and Sandy S., Eric of Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Dutch Girl, Mary H., Stephen T., and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. And now, my conversation with Will of the Weekend Homestead. So, hey, Will, thanks for being on the Root Simple Podcast. Thanks for having me today. Cool. So maybe we should start with a, a little bit about who you are. I know that uh, some listeners of this show also listen to the Garden Fork podcast with the other Eric, and you've been a frequent guest on that show, so uh, hopefully people have heard you there. But if they haven't, uh, tell us a little something about yourself, and um, you're a big YouTuber too, so you should mention your YouTube channel. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if if you've heard me before, you've probably heard my voice on uh, the Garden Fork podcast. Uh, Eric and I talk about a lot of DIY projects because that's kind of one of the areas that we, uh, I don't want to say specialize in, but one of the things that's predominantly on our channel, we're building something or doing something or making something. So we do a lot of that. Um, you can find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook under the Weekend Homestead. Uh, a little bit about us. We actually live in the city. My wife and I and our two uh, sons live in Minneapolis, right in the middle of the Midwest. And on the weekends, we kind of go to the go to Wisconsin, and we have a property there that's 160 acres, surrounded by 5,000 acres of state forest. It's really peaceful, and it's kind of a yin to the yang. You know, the city life—you get the cars, the traffic, the taxis, all that stuff out there. It's it's very quiet and peaceful, and you know, we enjoy both sides of it. So we kind of share that with everybody through the different social medias. Yeah, and it's beautiful. You can people look at your YouTube channel. They can see a lot of videos about you out on that property. It's like a very, very beautiful uh, place to be. And you've got a new, um, you have a new house there, right? Yeah, we. Uh, it, it's been a project in the works over the last five years. But the last piece was uh, last year we had purchased a 1960s uh, ranch style farm home, which is kind of a standard home in Wisconsin, and uh, it was in a little disrepair. And we started a. Uh, actually one of the largest remodel projects. Um, we made about 20 episodes, I think, of basically what we did each week and what we were focused on and and the trials and tribulations of remodeling. And hopefully some people learn from the mistakes that we made and see some of the ideas and it inspires them that, you know, remodeling is really not that difficult. And, you know, if I can do it with no formal uh, training or history or anything like that. And, you know, surrounding myself with some folks that are, you know, really good at that kind of stuff. We, we got a lot done, and uh, we did it in a really remote location, which was a lot of fun. And uh, listeners to the Garden Fork will also know that you're working on a, uh, a uh, very impressive outhouse as well. So, Yes. the uh, Actually, it's funny. I posted a couple posts on Facebook about that, and one of the biggest things that people notice about the outhouse is – it's it's very artsy. I mean, it's we've got shingles on it on the outside and the inside of it's very nice older barn wood and things like that. But the biggest thing that people comment on is the full glass door on the front of it. Uh, it goes from floor to ceiling. 
I will eventually uh, frost that glass. But when I posted the first pictures, I mean, we had a couple thousand people commenting on it and everybody was focused on, well, you're going to put a, like some drapes on there, right? Or you're going to frost that or like something like that. And, and I, I just kind of fed the fire a little bit like, you know, hey, uh, no, I think I'm going to leave it open. It's so nice and such a beautiful view. And and and, and people had a problem with that. So it was, it was kind of fun. Well, the question is, is it a bug or a feature, right? Exactly. Well, it's it's kind of a bug. We because we're in Wisconsin, <laughs> it, 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 I say it in jest, but it, it's we, we're in Wisconsin, and unfortunately, I, I finished this project kind of late October, and winter came up faster than we wanted. Well, I have a chemical etch that I'm actually going to etch the glass and then carve out a little half moon in there, so the whole thing will be frosted oh, nice. except for the moon. But I couldn't do the project because it was really cold. And we got this huge cold snap and the weather has to be above 50 degrees in order for it to set right. So I ended up passing on doing it. So I kind of put that project on hold. Now, granted, we still have other bathroom facilities on site. But in this part of the property, we kind of have two pieces. We have the on-grid part, which is the house that we remodeled. And then about a half mile back into the property, there's a, a little a cabin, kind of hunting shack type cabin that has an outhouse and a barn and that kind of stuff was where our apple orchard is. And the outhouse that was there needed repair. So I ended up replacing it with this new one, but we ran out of time with the winter. So now that winter is in full effect, unfortunately, you know, it is what it is. But you can watch the snowfall, you know. Right. I will. T I will tell you this: that when you, it, you, there's no real neighbors for miles around. So yeah, I'll use the outhouse, and you know, I'll leave the door <laughs> and look right out there, and it's so peaceful. I mean, there was one day where we had two deer that came out into the middle of the field while I was in the outhouse, and I was just like, yeah, there you go. Man, how does it? Yeah, exactly. Now, granted, I was working on it at the time; I wasn't actually using it, but you know, it's it's kind of nice to have nature come right up to your back door some days. It's a long story, but I used to work for an organization. We had an outhouse in the uh, salt flats of Utah, and uh, the guys that built it actually built in the view, so you, you could sit there and contemplate this. Nice. Uh, yeah, so just uh, we're, we're getting into potty talk here. But anyways, <laughs> moving on, um, uh, one of the reasons you contacted me is because you also have a background as a firefighter. And you were responding to a kind of silly post I wrote with a clickbaity title called something like uh, your open floor plan is a death trap or something like that. But anyways, you, you reached out to me and, and uh, you have some interesting things to say uh, about fire safety in houses and about the post I wrote. But before we get there, why don't you say a little something about your background as a, as a firefighter? Sure. I am retired now. So um, I worked uh, as a firefighter for 10 years as an active firefighter and then five years in administrative. Um, so in that 15-year time period, I worked as a paid-on-call firefighter in the south metro of the Twin Cities um, in Scott County. And basically what that means is um, I'm a regular person, have a regular nine to five job. I sit at a desk and work on Excel sheets all day, but I carry a pager. And if the pager goes off, I can respond to fire calls, show up to the firehouse, get on the truck and, and go do that. So it is the real deal of being a firefighter. And it's basically the same thing as a full time department. It's just we don't sleep at the fire station. So we have all the same equipment, all the same training, everything. Just the difference is, is that you, we, we stay at home with our families and are called in when um, a fire happens or something like that, which is actually really common in the United States. It saves cities immense amount of money um, regarding, you know, cities and parts of the towns where there's not as many calls. Like if you're in downtown LA, of course, it's going to be uh, a full-time department. But if you're in a smaller community of, let's say, 10,000 people or something like that, they can't necessarily afford the budget to have full-time. So you have paid on call, which is the same thing that I did. 
And you did a little hazmat work too, right? Yep. Uh, the the secondary part of um, my piece was I was a hazmat technician uh, focused in on uh, chemical spills and uh, meth labs, actually. So kind of both sides of it. It was one of those things where you can get into specialties. Some guys got into the specialty of the EMT medical stuff. Other people got involved with stuff with the police tactics and things like that. I ended up uh, specializing in the hazmat area, which was very interesting all of its own. Yeah, and then um, somewhat ironically, you you now make fires. Is that right? So you're still kind yeah. of on the side making some fire stuff, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, I am uh, uh, my regular career is of course working in an office, but then um, as a hobby, and it's been a hobby for a long time. I've I've been doing fireworks since I was a little kid, scaring the neighbor's dog, and you know doing that kind of stuff. But um, today, I'm actually a professional pyrotechnician in the state of Minnesota. Um, I do stuff for like if you ever go to sporting events or go to a community park and they have a professional show or even some stuff with TV. I've done stuff with the NFL and NBC and ESPN, different concerts and things like that. Like ACDC was just recently in town and uh, bands like that, things like that. So as a as a side gig, that's my kind of weekend uh, getaway gig uh, that I do for fun. And you did a Garden Fork podcast about that, too. I'll link to it in the show notes. I think Eric interviewed you extensively about that. Yeah, we, it was one of those things where we were getting kind of close to the 4th of July, and he's like, well, how does it work? And, you know, my specialty now in the pyro industry is indoor stuff, uh, so if you watch sporting events and that, you see it. But I originally started as a person doing municipality shows for, like, the 4th of July, and he wanted to know kind of how it works, so we did a little interview on it, and it's pretty interesting stuff if you check it out. Cool. So, But now it's Christmas coming up as we record this in December, which is a time when um, fires start that we don't want to start. Uh, and the post I wrote, which again was a little silly, it was about, uh, it was actually responding to some research that Underwriters Labs did about, uh, it's kind of about the difference of fires in older houses, maybe pre-World War II houses and uh, newer houses that are larger now, have different kinds of furniture, have an open floor plan. And I know you had some thoughts, positive and negative, about that post, and I wondered what, what your reaction to it was and, and what your thoughts were. Yeah, I, I kind of put together an email of just some some ideas and things like that, like they had a lot of good points in there. And I'm not here to say, oh, that was wrong or that's whatever, because a lot of the things they pointed out were very, very true. Like things like foam couches and uh, memory foam beds and and those types of things, all those chemicals and all of that polystyrene and plastic and things like that that are inside of those things make wicked fires. If you've ever been burning like brush and wood outside and you throw some pine onto, let's say, a campfire – you don't get noxious plumes of black smoke, but if you threw a tire in there or if you threw a couch cushion in there or something like that, and I'm not suggesting you do that, but let's say somehow it ended up in there or whatever, all of a sudden you get this black heavy smoke and you see the fire burning very, very hot and very, very quickly. They had a lot of good points that those types of materials that weren't necessarily around in original homes in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that are very prevalent everywhere today can affect how a fire works. And actually, as a firefighter, those types of things make the job significantly more dangerous for us today. Older homes do have their challenges, and we can talk about those. But, you know, the one point they were making about the materials burning a different way, 
the amount of chemicals that are inside of a house when there's a fire today are probably 10 to 15 times more toxic than actually the fire itself. It's not necessarily in a lot of cases people dying of getting burned these days. It's usually smoke inhalation because the smoke is charged with all these chemicals. You breathe it in and you don't need more than one or two breaths of it for it to scald the inside of your lungs and, you know, just do bad stuff. I'll just leave it at that. Now, I kind of naively thought, oh, this furniture has fire retardants in it, but that doesn't it's what what do those do and i mean so it doesn't stop the fire i guess obviously right no what it does is it changes the combustion point of the materials themselves so let's say something starts let's go back to chemistry for a second everybody and i'm not a chemist but i'll try to explain it in a way that i understand it which is Fire is a chemical reaction, and it happens with the right ingredients coming together to make it happen. Well, when you put fire inhibitors in place or different building materials in place to slow that down, what it's doing is it's hampering the fire from actually reaching the point that it can actually do the chemical reaction to make it happen. So when you put sheetrock on walls or if you put uh, certain fire breaks in or metal doors or if there's materials that have fire retardant, which actually not a lot of household materials have that. You'll see that in like industrial things and commercial things. There's a lot of fire retardants, but household furniture, because they want to make it cheap, fast, and easy, a lot of it doesn't have that in there as as much as it should, I guess. But, you know, in order to hit the price points, they can't necessarily put in the, the technologies that make furniture more safe. They just want to make it cheap. So on that note, well, you just remodeled a house. So as someone who was a firefighter, were there some things that you thought about from a firefighter's perspective when you were remodeling your house? Absolutely, actually. And I know a lot of people get down on the idea of codes and building codes. And I know there's a segment of people who are, oh, I want to build a house out in the middle of nowhere because I don't want to have to follow codes or those types of things. But quite honestly, I look at the code book and a lot of the things that are out there. Most of the stuff that's written in there is because something bad happened at one point in time and they changed the the rules or regulations to make it safer for people. A prime example is windows. And actually, it was one of the downfalls that I was going to mention to you about um, older homes is older homes tend to have smaller windows and the double hungs, which are actually really classic and look great and everything like that. But not everybody keeps them in good repair so they don't open. So in our remodel, one of the things that I did was in the 1960s home, it did. It had all really nice old wooden double hung windows, which we kept and we're going to use to build a greenhouse sometime next year. But I replaced them all with energy-efficient windows. But the other thing I did was I made the openings bigger so that there was easier egress. Because in a fire, you might not necessarily be able to use the door every time to leave a space. So I'd rather give somebody a better option. And most codes now state you have to have a larger size window with a certain size opening. The reason why is, one, it needs to be big enough for firefighters to get in with the tank on their back and all that stuff if they need to come in and rescue you. But number two is it makes it easier for people to get out of the home also. And then before we started recording, you were actually telling me something about carpet, which I had never thought about. So when you were redoing the house, did you think, oh, carpet, good idea, bad idea from a fire perspective? What do you think about that? Well, carpet does. It burns. I mean, the foam pad is another uh, one of those poly materials that burns very, very easily, very quickly and produces a lot of smoke and a lot of noxious chemicals. Myself, I looked at it as things like carpet burn really easily. Uh, if you take hardwood floor and you actually lay it down on the ground, real hardwood floor, and try to light it on fire, it's actually a lot harder than you think to light on fire in comparison to carpet. Carpet actually will light up pretty easily versus hardwood floors. For us, because we might be getting uh, a pet again or we might, you know, the the house gets dirty because we're out in the woods and those types of things, that I went with uh, natural materials like 
uh, tile stone and um, hardwoods in a lot of the area just for cleanup value and aesthetically it looks really good. But in all reality, the bigger space that we have because of the hardwood floors and because of the tile, the way we did it and things like that, there is a, an inherent fire safety. I mean, you could have a house fire and all the materials inside the house burn up but the tile floor is still perfectly fine. You just clean it off and it's still there because it just doesn't burn. So, you know, there is a little piece of that. I don't think a lot of people look at those types of things, more about furniture, openings, egress, windows, doors. Those types of things are really the things that make the difference in a house fire. Were there some other things that you saw during your time as a firefighter that kind of stick with you as uh, uh, things that could have been avoided that maybe could have saved a house or some lives? I would say that the three items that I probably harp on the most, and I don't mean to harp. I mean, it's not, that's probably not the right word, but if you're listening to this right now and you have a real Christmas tree in your house, pause the podcast for a second and go, and go water the tree because that is the, if you've ever watched and you can look up online, there's plenty of videos about this. And actually Eric and Rick talked about that this week on their that's podcast right. too, yeah. which is a pine tree that has green on it and it's green is a lot more difficult to light than a dry pine tree. And if you've watched how quickly a pine tree burns, just take pine branches and throw them on a campfire that are dry and watch how fast they combust. Well, now you have all that fire energy sitting inside of your house and it's just waiting for something to accidentally happen. A candle gets too close or um, you know, uh, lights have a heat problem or something like that, and that thing will go up. The simplest way to solve it, one, of course, get a fake tree. But if you don't want to get a fake tree, get... Uh, a real tree, but make sure you water it. The other item regarding um, pine stuff, to talk about that for a second before I get to the other two, is a lot of people will go and cut pine trimmings and do decorations on little shelves and things like that with pine uh, stuff. And then they'll run lights through it or they'll put mm -hmm. candles in it. I actually went to a house fire where this woman decorated her basement and it was very beautiful. We saw the pictures of what it looked like afterwards. We, we saw it when it was burning, but we saw the pictures of what it looked like before it started burning. And she took the pine branches and weaved them in along the shelf and she put garland and stuff, but then she put little candle, tea light candles in there inside of glass vases and thought it wasn't an issue. Well, she couldn't water those to keep them moist to keep them alive so that then they are less combustible. So now all of a sudden she had all this fire energy built up on that shelf and one of the candles just got hot enough to the point where that chemical reaction started happening on the fire and then the pine started on fire and boom, the whole, the whole room went up. It took, you know, less than five minutes for the room to become fully involved just from the tea light candle there. They were outside doing something or whatever it was and the neighbor noticed the fire through the window and called 911. Wow. So... So that's item one is if you have a, if you have that second item, smoke detectors save lives. They know they say that, but I've been to a number of fires where we've had fatalities and most of the fatalities were because people didn't know that the fire was happening or it got too out of control before they could get out of the house. Well, smoke detectors are there to kind of shorten that time window. It, it's, it's very, very simple. It's a, a simple thing. I mean, you can, even the inexpensive ones these days that are $10 at the home improvement stores make a huge difference. Put them outside your bedrooms, put them inside your bedrooms, put them in the paths where you're going to go. Put one maybe down in your um, utility room because then, you know, something mechanically happens in your house um, having that detector makes all the difference because it, it could give you an extra 30 seconds to get out of the house. Well, if you had to get out of your house really quickly, that 30 seconds could mean the difference between making it out and not making it out or having to be rescued or, you know, those types of things. And then the last item I talk a lot about are, um, fire extinguishers. If you don't have one in your house, 
go to the home improvement store and pick one up. I'm not here to push goods on people or anything like that, but I've seen many of times where someone has a kitchen fire or something like that where very easily they could have opened up the stove and sprayed inside of it with the fire extinguisher a little bit and they'd have a little bit of a mess to clean up versus a $30,000 remodel on their kitchen because the fire inside of their oven, which could have easily been stopped, starts the cabinets on fire and they run out of the house and they call the fire department and it takes, let's say, seven to ten minutes for to get all the equipment and everybody to start fighting the fire. And by that point in time, you've had massive damage. So those are kind of the three things I talk about the most. So it it happened to me, actually. I, I had some oil dripping in the oven one time and it caught on fire. But thankfully, I had a fire extinguisher and I was able to put it out really quickly. But speaking of fire extinguishers... How do you use a fire extinguisher? Because that was one of the things when I was doing the research for this post, I realized I don't really know how to use a fire extinguisher, and there is a technique to it. There is. Um, what I always tell people is think about it this way. When you look at a fire and you look at it from the side, the base of the fire is where actually all the activity is happening. That's where the chemical reaction is probably happening the most, the quickest, and the hottest. And the flames up at the very, very top where the orange um, kind of flames are kind of wicking away and those types of things, that's probably one of the cooler areas. Well, when you use a fire extinguisher, what you don't want to do is just pull the pin and spray everything down, thinking that the the fire extinguisher, if you spray it on all the stuff around the fire, it's going to make it so that it doesn't burn. The idea of a fire extinguisher is to break the chemical reaction that's happening in the fire um, in order to stop it. So the ways you can stop a fire, you can cut the oxygen off of it, which takes out one of the main components and puts the fire out. The second one is you can cool the space down, and by cooling it down, it would lower the burning temperature and then stop the fire. Those types of things are ways to do it. So when you're using a fire extinguisher, what I recommend for people to do is open it up and point it at the base of the fire. And don't open it full blast and just blow everything around because you just you might blow the materials that are burning off to somewhere else and it might cause the spread of it versus putting it out. Instead, just squeeze the handle a couple times. Um, and actually, a simple way to do it is point it somewhere else, squeeze it so you can see what it's going to do because most people don't know what a fire extinguisher is going to do until you actually use it. And you, you kind of want to know ahead of time. So squeeze a little bit away from where the fire is and then move it to where the fire is and shoot at the base of the fire and that's where you'll see the best effectiveness to it. And then stop for a second and evaluate and look and say, okay, the fire is getting smaller, spray it a little bit more. Just don't go hog wild on it and then burn up all of your um, use of your fire extinguisher and then realize, well, you're missing what you're shooting at or you're not helping the situation, you're making it worse. So kind of, you got you to gotta take a, a quick pause and breath for a second, even though it's an emergency, to evaluate what's going on and that'll help you know, the situation at least resolve itself most likely. Yeah, and then another question I had is, uh, we have two fire extinguishers in the house, one in the garage and one in the kitchen, and there's a little, they're, you know, inexpensive ones from Home Depot, but there's a little gauge on them, and, uh, you know, supposedly says whether they're still good or not, and I'm wondering if I should trust that gauge. They're getting kind of old, you know, they're maybe like 10 years old now. Should I replace those fire extinguishers? Well, if I, if I was working for the fire extinguisher manufacturers and, and so on, you, they say replace it every so many years and things like that. I, I'll be honest with you. As long as the gauge reads within the green area, you should be mm -hmm. okay. But one thing you should look at is, is the fire extinguisher still functional? Give you an example. If you have it in your garage where it's getting hot, wet, cold, 
all those types of things. Do you have a scenario where it's got rust on it, where when you go squeeze the handle, mm. it there's something impeding the ability for the fire extinguisher to work? Is it dirty and packed with dirt and dust and whatever, and that's going to stop it from working? Or is it been sitting out on the on the floor of the garage and it's got oil and grease and whatever on it and now you know when you squeeze the handle it doesn't make a good enough connection to actually discharge it or is the 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 nozzle plugged up with garbage i mean there's all sorts of things that can make your fire extinguisher fail if your fire extinguisher is over 10 years old you may consider getting something newer because there's a lot of new uh technology just they get better they get smaller they get more effective Mm -hmm. um use out of them as time goes along but at the same point i think you know a clean well-conditioned fire extinguisher that's older is probably just as good as a new one. It's just quite honestly, you got to look at it and go, okay, this one's not going to work because the whole top of it's rusted now. Well, (laughs) that, that that you, you don't want to find that out when your stuff is burning. Instead, you'd rather take a look at it today. So. Yeah. And then let's back up a second. Cause we talked a little bit about Christmas fires, but are there some other common, I mean, how do, how do most uh, residential fires get going in the first place other than the Christmas ones? Uh, the biggest, the the biggest one that I saw often were electrical based fires. In the sense of, give you an example, you have like we had a, a real simple one. There was a teenager who had a bedroom, and they had one of those brown extension cords running underneath their bed. Which you know that's fine if you're hooking up a light, but they had um, an electric heater hooked up to it. So yeah. now you have a device that's drawing a lot of electricity pulling through a cord that's not necessarily the best. And then of course that's plugged into a power strip that has 18 things plugged into it and so on. You know, things like that, overloading electric circuits tends to be a common thing for fires. Candles, by far candles are probably one of the biggest things that, you know, start uh, residential fires. Cause yeah, they put a great ambience out there and everything like that. But I actually was talking to Rick recently on the Garden Fork podcast about emergency preparedness. And one of the things that the the emergency preparedness people always talk about is, oh, have lots of candles in your house. Well, I have a five-year-old. And if yeah. he needs to go to the bathroom, I'm not going to give him a candle to go walk in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give him a flashlight with a battery because, one, LED batteries and flashlights last forever. But, two, he's five years old and he's not going to burn himself or start something on fire. So candles is another big one that I've – I've probably been to at least two or three dozen house fires, and some of them significant that uh, were caused by candles. Last item, and this is one that's a little controversial, and I, when I say it, you'll understand what I mean by controversial is, but smoking. Smoking, mm-hmm. um, I've been to a number of um, house fires, and actually a couple, two of them were fat- fatals, where they involved somebody who was smoking and didn't have the cigarette put out the right way. In fact, actually one of them was just, sheer bad luck the gentleman went out on his back deck smoked a cigarette which was you know fine i'm not here to judge if you smoke or not and then he flicked the cigarette well when he flicked it it hit the railing of the the uh, deck and landed on the deck and the wind blew it back to the house Hmm. well it was in the springtime and do you ever look on your house like if you have trees in the backyard you get leaves kind of that pile up along the edge of your house on the top of your deck you know they're kind of wedged between the back Mm -hmm. well he went inside the house, closed the door, got in the car, and went somewhere for Easter Sunday dinner. And that cigarette butt rolled back to the house and sat there and smoldered inside of the the leaves there. And eventually the wind got to the point where it started the leaves on fire and the leaves started the deck on fire. And then the fire kind of worked its way up the back of the house, got into the attic. And that's when we got called because now the smoke is huge and big and whatever. And they ended up losing the whole 
basically top half of their house and the whole half where the bedrooms and the sliding glass door were just because of a single cigarette. This is a little bit of an off-the-wall question. I hope you mind me asking you this, Will, but I've always wondered with first responders kind of how you deal with it emotionally because you get to see a lot of really difficult, tragic situations. And how do you kind of separate that from just going home to your family? And and, um, how do you deal with that kind of uh, really intense sort of life experience that that happens, I I imagine, on a fairly regular basis when you're working in the fire service. Yeah, you you get exposed to a lot of things. I mean, it's a very, very rewarding career, and it's a very, very sobering career. And, you know, it's one of those scenarios where some days you get to rescue somebody or save something and everything is great. But unfortunately, people don't tend to call the fire department or the police department when they're having a good day. It's usually when something really bad or tragic is happening. And, you know, it depends on the call and the situation and each individual is different. Some people just bottle it up or, you know, and that ends up coming back to bite them. A lot of times, like we've had a couple of calls where we've had some pretty significant instances where we've seen some very bad stuff. I've been to some very, very bad car accidents and very fatals and uh, very uh, serious fatal accidents. Mm -hmm. And even a couple suicides and things like that. And one of the things that they do is after the crew is exposed to something like that, they have people that you can go talk to and, and services and things like that, that, you know, are really helpful. And, and the fire department does a, a really good job of kind of taking care of its own in the sense of like, I remember we had one call where a woman um, got hit by a car and it was, it was a very serious situation. And it was one of the calls we were out there for a number of hours and we got back to the station and they, there was somebody there and, you know, we all sat and sat down and kind of talked about what we saw and what we thought about and things like that. Cause unfortunately this job, you, you get, you, you have to see that stuff. Probably the last call and I can still remember it to this day was, um, a fire that I went on. Um, it was two days before Christmas on the last, I was, I was retiring on December 31st and this call I think was on like. Uh, December 22nd and uh, it was an apartment fire for a disabled person and we were searching the house and I was on the search crew myself and someone else trying to find him for a rescue while another crew was working on putting out the fire and uh, I came very close and face to face with an individual uh, he had passed away and was very badly burned from the fire and that was the last call that I went on it wasn't a rescue it wasn't anything great, unfortunately. And, you know, even to this day, I think about that call and I think about, you know, the folks that I've been with and sometimes we talk about it and and it's something out there, but it's one of those things where all of those things shape who you are as a person and the camaraderie that you get from the individuals that you have on the fire department becomes something because you're put in these extreme situations and you have to live with what happens after them. And I think the close knit between the fire department and the families and how we all support each other really comes through. And I think that's one of the things that helps more than anything else. Do you think you're a different person now that you had that service than you were when you began uh, your, your experience as a firefighter? Absolutely. I I think that, you know, at the time when I was doing the fire department, I also worked for a very large electronics retailer in the United States. And I had a really fun job. I, I got to design and develop some of the greatest technologies out there and and some of the coolest things in the marketplace. And I don't want to say you get isolated on what reality is, but 
you know, it's you have fancy dinners and you get to go see all this cool stuff and you get to go play in the tech labs of all these great companies and and you do all of these things. And at the same time, I was a firefighter. So I do all these great things. And then I'd also end up in situations where somebody has a car accident or their uh, child committed suicide or, um, you know, very, very serious life events. And in the process of doing that, it kind of became the yin to the my yang in the sense of, you know, I had the reality of what everything was great, but I also had the reality of what was, you know, a challenging piece. And I, I actually in, took more enjoyment out of the fire department, knowing that you're making differences in other people's lives. I mean, yeah, creating a cool technology and seeing people use it out in the world and things like that has one level of satisfaction, but to know that you made a difference in another person's life. And the best part about it is most of the time we were anonymous. So it was one of those things where you could do all of these things and and you kind of were under the radar. You know, we saved somebody from a car accident, cut them out of the car, they made it to the hospital and made a full recovery. You know, that makes an impact on your life just as much as an impact on the person who you save. So, you know, I think it's made me look at the world and my relationship with other people and things a lot different than if I didn't have those experiences. And I bet, you know, since a lot of our lives are very abstract now with the internet and computer technology, and it sounds like you're in electronic uh, stuff too, uh, the, the other side of it is your experience in the fire service. I wonder if uh, your weekend homestead project is also a way for you to kind of get in touch with the real world, in a, in a sense, the physical world. Is that maybe how you see that? I, I actually describe it as, and I know we talked about this a little bit off the air, but people ask me what I do for a living and I say I'm in the business of raising boys. You know, we have two great sons and things like that. And when I was growing up as a kid, yeah, we had a lot of the modern conveniences and everything that was in a home. But then on the flip side of it, my my dad would take us out hunting or we'd go out fishing or we'd go out camping somewhere and we'd go hike in the woods and you know, look at leaves or go find a, a stream and skip rocks and like do those things. And I know they sound kind of cliche, but it really kind of got me in touch with, you know, what the outside natural world was like. And I look at it as we live in the city. I mean, we live in the concrete jungle. There's, you know, roads in suburbia and everybody cuts their grass on the same day and, you know, high rise buildings and all that stuff. When we go to our property in Wisconsin, it gives our boys a chance to do something else other than the devices that are always in front of them. I mean, kids these days have access to a lot of devices, a lot of technology, and a lot of those types of things. And it's not a bad thing, but I think it needs to be in moderation. So the way we moderate it is, is that, you know, during periods of time, we'll go up and, you know, I was kind of proud. My my son didn't know the latest characters in the cartoons, but he knew how to identify five different trees based on, mm -hmm. you know, their bark at five years old. And it's like some adults don't even know how to do that. And it's it's kind of a cool thing to share those experiences and teach the things I know to my kids. So you're right. I think the Wisconsin piece is an escape, but it's an escape to kind of show what the natural world is around us, which is everywhere. Technology isn't just the only thing out there. So if people are interested in uh, either volunteering for the fire service or getting involved in some way, what are the ways that, that people can, can do that? Sure. Uh, that's actually a common question that I get asked a lot. There's, I want to start by explaining there's three types of fire departments because I think people are going to have exposure to things in different ways. I mean, your audience is very diverse. Some of them live in big cities. Some of them live in outlying areas. Some of them live in very rural areas. So their experience might be different depending on where they're located. But for the most part, the three types of fire departments are a strictly volunteer department, something called a paid on call department, or then there's a full-time department. Um, if someone wants to become a full-time firefighter, you usually go to school, 
Um, it's always recommended to start in kind of a volunteer or a paid on call position and do that for a couple of years to get experience and then, you know, apply for the big city. I will tell you that getting on a big city fire department can be challenging in the sense of give example, St. Paul last year had 675 applicants for 24 positions because it's a popular job. So you have to be really good at what you do to get on the full-time departments. But there's a lot of communities out there that don't have full-time departments that still need help. And that's where you're paid on call and volunteer. So if you're in a very rural area, let's say you have a town of 300 people or something like that, or a small community, usually those are volunteer. And then if you have a medium-sized city, let's say 2,000 people to, let's say, 10 or 20,000 people, you have what's called paid on call. In those types of departments, quite honestly, it's as simple as showing up at the fire station when they have an open house or if you see an ad in the paper applying for it and saying, hey, I'd be interested in volunteering. You go through some interviews and some checks and things like that. And then usually paid on call or full or uh, volunteer fire departments would pay for your training. So give you an example, when I got accepted onto the fire department, which is a story all of its own, shortly thereafter, I started in fire school. So I worked my regular job and then I went to fire school and every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, I'd go to classes and things like that. And you earn your degree basically in fire science or your certifications, I should say. And then you pass a couple tests and you're on the fire department, then usually have a probationary period. And then you have continued education you need to do. But it all starts with as simple as, you know, stopping by the fire station and asking them when they're going to have an open house and a hiring period. And they usually will have it. And you come in, you can check out the gear and ask all your questions. And they do a bunch of interviews. And then they'll pick a certain number of people per department, put them on and put them through training. And that's really how you get started. Uh, here we have something called CERT, too, which is uh, sort of a, for people who don't want to actually go out and fight fires, but help with emergency response. Um, I guess it started uh, when uh, the L.A. County Fire Department took some people to Japan and saw how uh, civilians are ready for earthquakes, which, of course, is a big concern here. And so there's this kind of – it's called CERT, and they give you a little bit of training in terms of uh, responding to a, a natural disaster. So I don't know if you have something like that there. Maybe that's just in places where there's big natural disasters, but um, uh, I, I actually, guess it's another way to, to volunteer. Actually, yeah. I mean, if you even if you didn't want to get onto a fire department and be a firefighter, there's other ways to support uh, the fire department. You know, there's a lot of fundraisers and things like that for them to buy equipment or do those things because, unfortunately, fire departments aren't as well-funded in rural areas as they are in metro areas. So, you know, it's one of those things where those types of things help. But then on the other side is if you want to donate time, things like the Lions Club or – um, the American Legion, or even the Red Cross, you can volunteer to those types of groups, and they also help the fire uh, departments. Because I'll give you an example. We had uh, a uh, industrial fire that went on for three days. Well, my pager went off, and I left work, and I got on my gear, and we went to the industrial fire. Well, we were there for three days and rotating people through, and uh, the Red Cross and the American Legion had set it up where they brought in lunch for us and had rest stations where we could sit down and you know, rest and, and, you know, relax while this whole situation was going on. And, or we've had one where we had some flooding by the river and things like that. And those volunteers helped people carry some of their goods out of their homes to get them, you know, to higher ground and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to fight the fire to be part of community service. And that's the most important thing is, you know, just talk to some people and, and get involved and you'd be surprised. You meet a lot of great people out of it and it feels good when you're helping other people. I won't lie. I mean, it's, it's, there's a level of satisfaction when you're helping somebody else in a time of need that, you know, 
it's really hard to come by unless you go do it. Moving on, I just I wanted to to conclude with uh, maybe uh, some a scoop on what you're working on video wise. Any interesting projects around the uh, homestead that uh, we might see in YouTube soon? Yeah, um, actually, so right now I'm working on uh, a, a solar project. Um, our our property, just to explain again, a part of it is on the grid and it's uh, the the farm home. But then back in the woods, there's the barn and the, our apple orchard and and our uh, mini cabin. And one of the things that we don't have there is uh, energy, electricity, because it's very expensive to run electrical through the woods. So for us. I need to figure out a way to power lights and things like that. Currently, we're using generators, but you also don't want to go to the serene natural environment of the middle of the state forest and listen to a generator drone the whole time. So one of my objectives, hopefully for next year, is to put something in place where I can take the generators out of the equation and still have lights in some of the buildings or have lights for the orchard if we're working and things like that. And and so one of the things I'm working on right now is doing research and kind of teaching myself about how solar works to figure out, could I put in an array or something like that on the property that would meet the needs of what we're looking for, which is let's get the generator out of the equation and have the ability to have reasonable light. So that is something I am working on right now. The other one is uh, cooking videos. Uh, the missus uh, has been very popular doing some cooking stuff, and we got an Instapot, so you're going to see oh. us uh, doing some Instapot stuff here soon. So what's uh, what's been cooking in the Instapot around the house? We uh, did New England clam chowder last weekend, which mm. was uh, actually pretty spectacular. And and this is an odd one, but you know you can make hard-boiled eggs inside of an Instapot like in a ridiculous amount of time. Now, granted, I mean, you, know, you need to boil water and you put eggs in there, and it doesn't take that much time. But for the Instapot, it was literally put the eggs in, put the water in, press two buttons, the machine went doo doo and did its, its thing. And then all of a sudden, boom, you had hard-boiled eggs. It was like amazing, you know, the, how quickly it happened. So... They, we're going to do some of that type of stuff too. Cool. And the you mentioned the apple orchard in passing. There is, I take it, there's a something. Did you plant that orchard, and and what kind of trees yeah. did you plant? Uh, yeah, actually, that was a, a, a our big project two years ago. So every year I have a big project. Um, two years ago it was the apple orchard. Last year it was the cabin remodel. This next year is going to be what I call infrastructure, or you know the infrastructure that. But for the apple orchard, it was an area where we had. The gentleman who had the property before us had just a big grass area. It was probably 300 feet wide by 400 feet long. And it was one of those things where I was getting really tired of mowing it and wanted to come up with something productive I could do with the space. So we did some research over the winter, which is usually the time we do the research. And we planted a um, space that's, I think it's a 150 feet wide by 175 feet long. And it's got 30 trees in it with a, a fencing and we have a little orchard shed and things like that. But I've got four types of apples, two types of pears, two types of peaches, four types of plums, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, all sorts of stuff, all enclosed in this space. that has a eight foot fence around it to keep the deer and the animals out. Very cool. Anything, anything was the skybox too. I was watching that video earlier. Give a- yeah. Yeah, that's a that was a that's a project. It's one of those ones where it started out really small, and then <laughs> if you watch some of the things that I do, I start out small, and it's like, hey, we could do this, and all of a sudden, oh, well, what if we did that? And what if we did this? And what if we did? That? And then and next thing you know, it's uh, you know, this the skybox. Uh, the initial intent is to hunt animals out of it, of course, but then it became also, well, what if we put a table in there and we put a heater in there, and the boys could come out and we could sit out there and 
listen to the animals at night sometime during the summer, or we could, you know, watch for things. And, and like my son likes to go out in the woods and we make little camp meals and things like that on a little mini stove and stuff. So we'll hike out in the woods together and kind of bum around and then we'll go up to the, this location. Well, I always wanted a little cabin in the woods and then we figured, well, let's make it an elevated platform. So now it's 12 feet off the ground and all the engineering that went into figuring out how to build a, you know, 36 uh, or a six foot by six foot building 12 feet off the ground and make it safe. So there was engineering into that. And then that ended up being the building and then the building got this added on and so on. So it's been deemed the skybox because now that, you know, four people could easily sit inside of it, play cards and watch the animals outside. And it was originally supposed to be just a shack to keep me warm during hunting. So <laughs> now it's a hangout spot. Anything it else, is. anything else uh, you want to mention before we, uh, well, actually we should mention again, your Facebook and Instagram and YouTube channels. So, yep. Uh, it's actually really easy to find us. We're the weekend home. Homestead. Uh, just look up uh, the Weekend Homestead on Instagram or on Facebook and then on YouTube. If you type it in, it'll come up. One thing we do on uh, YouTube is if you do subscribe to us, we try to do weekly live shows where we do Q&A for people. People can ask us questions. We can talk about things. We give updates on the property, what's going on with the family, you know, very family oriented stuff. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is this started out as a, a fun thing for me to do with my son and my wife and things like that. And it's just kind of grown a life of its own. And now I've been introduced to folks like yourself and Eric and a number of other creators out there that are all great people. And it's been just really rewarding, but people can find us at the weekend homestead. If you wanted to look up some of the stuff we've been doing. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was Will of the weekend homestead. You can find him in YouTube and make sure to subscribe to his channel you can also find him on Instagram at The Weekend Homestead and on Facebook at Weekend Homestead. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our closing music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.